Hello friends and shalom. This is Tom with Truth Ignited Ministry and this message is titled The Importance of Unicorns in Witchcraft Religion. Now before I begin, let me just share something real quick with you. If you enjoyed the teachings of Truth Ignited Ministry and want to help us do more and reach more people, you can support through the Spotify for Podcasters page by signing up to be a $5 or $10 monthly partner, or you can support through Cash App using dollar sign Truth Ignited. Also, be sure to check out the Truth Ignited website, www.truthignited.com for more great teachings. Now, the late Dr. Lester Sumrall, a pioneer in Pentecostal deliverance ministry, once said, don't play with things connected with demon power, leave them alone. In the past several years, there's been a literal explosion of unicorn imagery presenting itself practically everywhere. You know, it seems that most of this is targeted at young girls from children to teenagers, and of course many adult women, women follow these trends as well, but it it's not just limited to merchandise that appeals to girls. There are products being promoted toward boys and young men as well. Many Christians who are typically ignorant of the spiritual significance of them, embrace things like unicorns, as, as they do with so many things within modern popular culture. For this reason, I felt compelled to do a message on why followers of Yeshua would do good to steer clear of all the unicorn stuff that's going around. While it's possible that this is a modern trend that maybe will go away, I'm really not sure this one will at this point. So often I've seen that when imagery and symbolism connected with demon powers and the witchcraft religions make their way into the broader godless society we live in, they become a stronghold. This would probably explain why the most popular brand of coffee today is the one that prominently bears the image of the pagan goddess Melusine, a twin-tailed mermaid from the old Nordic religion on all of their products. And, and like unicorns, mermaids are also rooted in witchcraft and paganism and should not be embraced by followers of Yeshua. Something that I can address more in another message. What most Christians I see embracing these unicorn products don't seem to realize is that the unicorn, considered a mythical and magical creature that has never actually lived on the earth, holds a prominent place in the witchcraft religion of Wicca. I've even seen ministers, particularly in Messianic Jewish and Hebrew roots movement circles, who have claimed things like Hanukkah and the Star of David symbol are pagan, which is not even true, yet express that they have no conviction at all to avoid things like unicorns and mermaids and various other things that most accept as just fictional creations of cultural mythology. How backwards is it? To say things like Hanukkah, that John 10 indicates Yeshua likely celebrated, and I believe he did, and I've got a whole teaching on that, or the most recognized symbol of Israel today, which is actually inspired by the pomegranate fruit, are somehow evil, while saying that there's nothing wrong with actual symbols of demon power and witchcraft. 
In this message, I'm going to share with you some points that, if you are serious about your faith in Yeshua, should hopefully persuade you to engage in spiritual warfare against this demonic attack on our children. And I'm going to show you that this truly is a demonic attack on children. Now, before you decide that this sounds like some crazy and sensationalist message, I'm going to urge you to at least give it a chance. What I'm going to be sharing will include statements from real practicing Wiccan witches. You've got nothing to lose but a little bit of your time by listening to this. But if, having listened to it, you find that there is a legitimate concern expressed in this message, you'll realize that you may have had everything to lose by not giving it a chance, especially if you're the parent of young children, and especially young girls. First, let's talk about unicorns and witchcraft. Unicorns are an important part of witchcraft practices. Their subtle appeal to the masses is, as you will see a little later in this message, the reason they are being pushed so hard on society. We must realize that we're in a war against the forces of evil in this world, and the devil doesn't play fair. 2 Corinthians 11.4 tells us that Satan himself appears as an angel of light. You know, the Harry Potter movies, they've become kind of a cultural phenomenon and have exposed a lot of people to the practice of witchcraft. Some Christian leaders have even expressed concerns about the influences of real witchcraft incorporated into the books and later the movies. Unicorns do appear in these stories, and according to the website, the Harry Potter Lexicon, it says, Unicorns are known to live in the forbidden forest, but are very difficult to catch or even catch sight of. However, while possessing Quirrell, Voldemort was able to kill a unicorn and drink its blood. Harry, Neville, and Draco accompany Hagrid and Fang into the forest to try and track the injured unicorn. Firens tells Harry that unicorn blood will keep you alive, even if you are an inch from death, but at a terrible price. You know, among Christian writers who have addressed the Harry Potter movies, Richard Abanis references the use of unicorns in his book Harry Potter and the Bible, The Menace Behind the Magic, mentioning a connection between unicorns, centaurs, and astrology. What I find more interesting, however, is statements in the foreword of the book, written by Dr. Douglas Gruthus, a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, who says this concerning the state of modern Christianity. Christianity and the overall acceptance by Christians of such unchristian and quite frankly demonic things. He said, spiritual discernment in America may be at an all-time low in both the church and in the world. The idea of spirituality, nail all the rage in our postmodern times, is deemed subjective, relative, pragmatic pursuit of a personal enjoyment apart from consideration of truth, rationality, or objective reality. And far too many Christians have failed to develop their critical faculties concerning the enticements of a post-Christian culture. Moreover, in our fallen world, many forms of evil masquerade as innocent, harmless, and fun. 
they're often accepted with little evaluation or criticism, especially when they're popular and entertaining. Yet Paul calls us to test everything, hold on to the good, and avoid every kind of evil. That's First Thessalonians five twenty one through twenty two. Jesus also warned the undiscerning people of his day to stop judging according to mere appearance and make right judgments. John seven twenty four. But right judgments about popular culture are all too rare today, even in the church. Hebrews five eleven through fourteen. Think about that. This man, a scholar with a PhD, who works as a professor in a seminary, is saying that most Christians are essentially walking around clueless about the evils around them and even embrace them. You know, I actually know another Bible college professor who fully embraces this kind of stuff. It's incredible. Why do they do this? They just want to fit in with the world around them. They write off the evil they embrace with statements like, well, that's not what it means to me. You know, absolutely nothing in the Bible affords you the right or the liberty to assign your own meaning to things rooted in pagan religion and witchcraft. To believe otherwise is proof positive that one has wholly submitted their mind to Satan, even if they claim to profess faith in Yeshua. You know, I've got a real hard truth for you. The Bible tells you to come out from among them and be separate. 2 Corinthians 6.17 It doesn't matter what you think something means or what you decide it means to you. What matters is what the thing actually means and what God, through the Bible, tells us to do in staying away from things associated with evil, pagan religion, witchcraft, and the occult. If you're truly submitted to Yah, truly following Yeshua, truly filled with the spirit of holiness, then you would just do what the Bible says instead of making up your own rules of religion. Angela A. Wicks is a writer for Llewellyn, an organization that publishes books in the categories of astrology, tarot, wellness, earth-based spirituality, magic, and the paranormal. Wicks has authored a book titled Llewellyn's Little Book of Unicorns, where she says that the reader will get the chance to understand different ways unicorn energy tries to get your attention. These include things like synchronicity, where you find beauty, messages, and dreams, the special unicorn people in your life, and your imagination, passions, and personal quirks. The power of color also fits in this list. Rainbows are especially associated with the unicorn, and for good reason. We'll explore why that is and also consider nature's material rainbow that you can hold right in your hand in the form of crystals and stones. Then she continues with this that you'll discover ways you can make sure you're awake to all magic that's trying to get your attention. Mindful practice can be helpful support for that purpose. Another effective strategy is removing physical things that are making it harder for you to see the source of what makes you shine. Sometimes 
our beliefs or lack of belief can get in the way too. You know, I, I personally know practicing Wiccans who are very into these unicorns. The plain reality is that they are not simply cute, horse-like, imaginary creatures. They're quite demonic. This becomes very apparent when you look into the various pagan mythologies about them. I, I was once watching a program on television, you know, for research purposes, that had a unicorn in one of the episodes. The creature would entice and attract people to it and then proceed to kill them and eat their heart out. You know, that sounds just like the way Satan operates. Tess Whitehurst is a practicing witch and a writer-teacher of magic. One of her books is titled Unicorn Magic, Awaken to Mystical Energy and Embrace Your Personal Power. In this book, she makes the following remarks. As beings of immaculate integrity, unicorns hold a unique and precious space in our cultural consciousness. It is wonderful to see how popular they have become in recent years, as their values are so needed at this time. Clearly, it's not a coincidence that unicorns have become more visible in our culture at this time. They're a powerful medicine for all that currently challenges our world. If you're irresistibly drawn to the beauty and mystery of unicorns, please don't discount this feeling as frivolous or fluffy. It's the unicorns calling you to a profound and powerful spiritual path. It's the unicorns asking you to to participate in a powerful shift of consciousness that will allow much-needed multidimensional healing to occur on our planet. And it's the unicorns recognizing you as one of their own. In this same book, Whitehurst offers a number of actual unicorn witchcraft spells that the reader or student of the craft, witchcraft, can practice. Yes, that's right. The book teaches you how to practice magic through unicorns. Some of the spells in the book are the sunshine spell to break through the gloom, the moonlight spell to wake up to wonder, the waterfall spell to attract a new income stream, the sparkle bath to attract a new romance, the lilac spell to repair a relationship, the Angel Aura spell to attract magical friendships, the Red Clover potion for healing the heart, the Cedar spell to speed physical healing, and the Apple ritual for boosting health and immunity. Think about what these spells are offering. Joy, prosperity, romance, friendship, healing, and health. All of these things are available to you through faith in Yah and His Word. But how can you receive the blessing of God through His Word if you come before Him bearing the images of pagan religions and witchcraft? If you're a Christian, you have no business associating with demon spirits and things associated with witchcraft. You might think that something like a unicorn is just some cute cultural phenomena, but I assure you, there are demon spirits in every single one that you see, and you best be careful about this. One of the biggest mistakes Christians make is falling for the idea that evil and demonic things have to look a certain kind of way. For example, most Christians have been conditioned to picture Satan as a beast 
beastly creature with red skin, bulging muscles, horns on his head, you know, holding a pitchfork, and, and so on. Yet the Bible says that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. The reason for this is because Satan, the master manipulator and ultimate deceiver, relies on things that fit the mold of what evil is supposed to look like to lead people to see something like a unicorn is not really evil because they just don't look like what people think evil and demonic things are supposed to look like. This is seen in so many aspects of life. It's why Christians think it's okay to celebrate Halloween at their churches as long as they call it something else and have a no scary costumes rule. It's why Christians can look at a secular concert or a movie and call it satanic but can't see that their own humanistic and worldly worship services are actually far worse and far more blasphemous than whatever they're pointing their fingers at. With regard to witches and witchcraft, Christians are conditioned to think of some evil old lady with green skin and a warts on her nose and mixing potions in a cauldron. The reality is that actual witches in real life look like anyone else. As I said, I know some of you probably do too, though you may not even know you do because there's nothing that actually screams out, I'm a witch. This is why things like unicorns are so important in witchcraft religions because so long as Christians think evil is supposed to look a certain kind of way, they can easily be snared by demonic things that don't look demonic according to what people think evil should look like. This is all a demonic attack on our children. You know, there's a reason why unicorns are showing up everywhere and especially why they're being targeted toward young girls. And it's not the reason why witches like Tess Whitehurst believe they're everywhere. Look at what author and Bible teacher Cindy Jacobs says regarding how Wiccans target teenagers in her book, Deliver Us From Evil, Putting a Stop to the Occult Influences Invading Your Home and Community. She says, I've interviewed high school students around the country and have found that the majority of those who attend public schools know about paganism. Non-Christian youth today are very eclectic in their belief system. They've got no problem throwing Christianity into a pile along with the rest of religions as long as it doesn't interfere with the worship of many gods and goddesses. And then she continues, according to various Wiccan writers, teenagers are the future of the craft. Satan is sly and knows there is a tremendous revival coming. While we do not want to be the persecutors of witches, we must warn our children and youth against this fast-growing source of deception. In order to do this, we must be informed. Hiding our heads in the sand will not make paganism go away. Look, Look, Satan is targeting your children, Christian parent. You better get serious about not only your faith, but also in knowing the enemy of your faith. There are cartoons, clothing, and toys everywhere with unicorn imagery on them. One popular children's cartoon, My Little Pony, has long incorporated unicorns into their programming. You know, recently I was in a store where I saw a toy for one of the characters of this cartoon named Trixie Lulamoon. Trixie is a blue-colored unicorn dressed with a witch's hat and a cloak. 
I don't know if there's a more obvious example of the demonic nature of unicorns and the attack on the mind of children than this character. It's literally training young minds directly through unicorn imagery to think witchcraft is fun. There are so many places that you see unicorns today. I've seen Barbie doll unicorns. I've seen unicorns on cereal boxes. I've seen unicorns being used by professional wrestlers. I even saw a Christmas sweater that had Santa Claus riding on a unicorn. And this was quite fitting, actually, since Santa Claus is simply the Norse pagan god Odin rebranded, who today is one of the prominent gods of the Wiccan religion and one of the major influences of modern Christmas traditions. The Nordic Yule Festival is a major holiday in Wicca. Uh, now, I know that there's some who contest the Odin-Santa Claus connection, but having reviewed a lot of the material about that, I can say that it's at least a valid theory that should be taken serious. And until you can show me where the Bible approves of Santa Claus, or Christmas at all, well, I better just leave that alone for now. Unicorns are everywhere, and if you don't know the information I'm sharing with you, then you might be buying merchandise for your children that opens them up to demonic influence. When these kids become teenagers, the foundation will already be set for them to embrace Wicca and witchcraft. And believe me, most Christians won't even know their children are doing this, and even if they find out, it will be after their kids are well inundated into it. On top of that, since most Christians live in their deceived little religious bubble, they won't have the first clue what to do when their children do become practicing Wiccans either because they didn't take messages like this serious. I've watched it my whole life. You know, growing up in the Baptist church, when I was a teenager, I remember parents gossiping about their kids practicing levitation and other such things, but they were cessationists. Then they didn't believe that they had spiritual power. They had no idea what to do, so they just sat around and talked about it. Even around a lot of Pentecostals and Charismatics who do believe in the supernatural power, many simply don't take it serious, and when the rubber meets the road, they stand in bewilderment because they can't believe such things would happen to their children. You know, you know that singer Katy Perry grew up in a Pentecostal church, and that's just one example. Let me also point out that unicorn imagery is also being embraced heavily by the movement to embrace various types of sexuality. One area of Wicca and witchcraft that is of great concern is the use of sex in ritual practice. I've known of teens who embrace Wicca that also explore various sexual practices, including same-sex relationships and bestiality. All of this is interconnected, and all of it seems to stem from children embracing things like unicorns that set them up to embrace other demonic spirits as they grow older. Don't make the mistake of thinking that these things are innocent mythology creations of fairy tales. That's exactly what the devil and the witchcraft religions want you to think so that you can surround your children with symbols that invite demon spirits into their young minds, planting the seeds that they'll draw them to embrace witchcraft, unnatural forms of sexuality, and other things that you know good and well are against a biblical lifestyle. So now let's talk about the connection 
separation between unicorns and virgins. One area of great concern to the Christian parent regarding the religious and spiritual significance of unicorns should be the sexual symbolism in the practice of unicorn-based witchcraft. Dr. Emma Maggie Solberg, a professor of British medieval literature and culture at Bowdoin College presents the following in her book, Virgin Whore, regarding the mystic hunt of the unicorn. And this is pretty long, so I'm just going to read through this. The allegory of the mystic hunt of the unicorn features some of the late medieval period's most explicitly sexual imagery of the incarnation and derives from ancient Mediterranean animal lore. The physiologist tells us that hunters can approach the mighty monoceros, literally the one horn, translatable as unicorn or rhinoceros, the distinctive horn of this right cruel beast. John of Trevesa explains is extends four feet in length, so sharp and so strong that it can kill an elephant. With his mighty and potent horn, the early 13th century French translation of the physiologus adds the unicorn tears and shreds through anything in its path. Therefore, hunters pursuing this beast must abandon force and resort to duplicity. The physiologist teaches that only a beautiful and ideally naked virgin can capture a unicorn. And now, now I want you to keep that in mind. Keep that line in mind, because we're going to come back to that later. The physiologist teaches that only a beautiful and ideally naked virgin can capture a unicorn. Unicorns apparently cannot resist this bait. As soon as the unicorn sees her, Richard de Forneville explains in his 13th century Bestiaire d'Amour, it comes to her. Why? As Hildegard of Bingen tells us, it is because he perceives that maidens are enticing and delightful. Once the unicorn approaches, Richard de Forneval suggestively continues, the maiden opens her lap to it, and the beast bends its legs in front of the maiden and puts its head in her lap. Other versions of the story add that the unicorn will then suck the breasts of the maiden and conduct himself familiarly with her. Afterward, the unicorn falls fast asleep in the maiden's embrace. It is at this point that the crafty maiden must grab the unicorn by the horn, rendering him utterly helpless. Only then can the monster finally be captured in cage or, as Hildegard of Bingen advises in her Physica, disemboweled and harvested for the precious medicinal properties of his skin, hooves, and horn. The sexual valence of this narrative is hard to miss. The unicorn functions as a symbol of masculine fecundity. His whiteness and his wildness signify his purity, purity primarily in the sense of untapped potency ripe for fertilization, and his four-foot-long horn makes for a rather obvious phallic symbol. The unicorn's horn, as the art historian Christian Heck discreetly puts it, evokes another kind of appendage. This phallic fertility monster can only be subdued by coitus, represented by the encircling and suckling of the animal in the embrace of a naked virgin. Depictions of the encounter between the maiden and the unicorn are often adorned with marginal symbols of fecundity, cherries, bunnies, oranges, fountains, nightingales, and all manner of medieval aphrodisiacs. Indeed, images of the hunt of the unicorn, like, for example, the unicorn tapestries 
at the cloisters actually function as literal accessories to the sacrament of marriage. When the maiden encircles the unicorn's neck with a golden collar, she allegorizes the plighting of troth, exchanging of rings, and carnal consummation. Contrary, perhaps, to modern expectations, medieval exegetes saw this explicit fertility ritual of the maiden and the unicorn as an apt allegory of the incarnation. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as the bestiaries have it, is the spiritual unicorn. Just as the unicorn put his horn in the grip of the maiden, the Savior, as the physiologist explains, put his horn of salvation into the womb of the Virgin Mary. In the 6th century, Gregory the Great elaborated on this comparison, adding that the mighty Monoceros lost all his swelling pride when the Virgin opened her bosom and enveloped the wisdom of God in her flesh. In other words, the allegory of the mystic hunt of the unicorn represents the wrathful God of the Old Testament as a wild and dangerous beast, and the Virgin Mary as the irresistible bait that lured him into the double-hinged trap of the Incarnation and Crucifixion. This erotic allegory of the Incarnation flourished in medieval literature, homilies, and iconography. A 14th century Middle English lyric, perhaps William of Shoreham's translation of a poem by Robert Grosetesti, thanks the Virgin for having allayed tames and stilled, the unicorn that was so wild with the milk of thy breast. In other words, the poet thanks Mary for having subdued the jealous and avenging Jehovah, and you know that I don't really care for the name Jehovah, but that's I'm quoting the author here, and for having transformed him into the sweet and harmless infant Christ, mewling and suckling at her breast. The virgin pacified God's anger. Inside her body, Mary transformed God's vengeance into mercy and his terrifying might into adorable infancy. Okay, okay, no, look, let, let me first say that despite what you've just heard, and despite whatever claim there may be that the physiologist is an early didactic Christian text, there is certainly nothing about what I just shared that aligns with an orthodox Judeo-Christian faith. Just because people throw around names like Jesus and Virgin Mary doesn't mean something can magically, no pun intended, become biblical. The apostles and other early Christian writers very boldly stood against such Gnostic beliefs as what are written in documents like the Physiologus, where Messianic language and references to Yeshua are blended with pagan philosophies and mythologies. Now that I've cleared that up, let's look at what this is describing. It's quite obvious, as Salberg points out, that there is a plethora of sexual language being used here. In case you're not familiar with some of the terms used in this citation, let me help you with some of these not-so-common English words. Fecundity is the ability to produce an abundance of offspring or new growth. Fertility. Phallic symbol is any object that may broadly resemble or represent the male genitalia. Coitus means sexual intercourse. But let me also note that the phrase conduct himself familiarly with her is a direct reference to engaging in sexual intercourse. 
In other words, thou was saying that in addition to suckling the breasts of the virgin, the unicorn would have sex with her too. This, of course, is all symbolic of the mythology, but what it represents is nothing short of real witchcraft practices. When we put all of this together and consider how all of this fits with witchcraft religions, such as Wicca and the fertility and sexual rights involved, we begin to see a more clear picture of what the unicorn mythology is really all about. This is all a part of the ideology in these fertility witchcraft cults that a virgin entices a man. The unicorn's horn represents the male sex organ and receives him to herself. Through this act, the virgin becomes the witch or the goddess over the man, which is seen through her taking control of his sex organ when he's lulled to sleep after they're engaging in sexual intercourse. Why do you think the unicorn images are being found on so many products marketed specifically to young girls today. Satan is trying to raise them to become goddesses in his kingdom. Think about how popular it has become today for young women to refer to themselves as a goddess or a diva. He's looking for more Eves who will take what God said to shun, then lure the man to, in to succumb to the wrong order. God created the man to be the priest of his home. Adam was supposed to be the high priest of Eden. Instead, he submitted to Eve, who chose to follow the same path that modern witchcraft offers. Both of them made the wrong choice, but that choice was made through following a wrong order of authority. Adam was supposed to follow Yah and lead Eve. Instead, Eve followed Satan and misled Adam. Have you ever been involved with a married couple that has struggled in their relationship? You know, I've, I've worked with a number of people in the past and offered advice, though Though I don't do this often, as I believe it's best for a couple to seek advice from those trained in marital counseling and not see, simply seek the opinion of a minister. One thing I've noticed is that often the woman will withhold sex from her husband as a means to try controlling and manipulating him. This is a type of witchcraft. It's what the mythology of the unicorn is all about. A woman luring the man through sexuality and then taking control of him through his sex organ. If she is successful in this, the man is typically unhappy with the direction of the relationship. If she's not successful, she is typically the unhappy one. Often this results in the unhappy person going into some form of depression. The Bible actually says that it's wrong for a spouse to refuse sex in a Christian union. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 through 5. The world says you can have all the sex you want with whoever you want as long as there's consent. But God says you have no right to refuse sex with your spouse without their consent. The ways of God are always the opposite of the ways of Satan. The entire picture of the unicorn witchcraft symbolism is the wrong order. The very thing that caused the fall of humanity in Eden when the woman was not submitted to her husband as priest sought power that was not hers and threw the whole thing out of balance. And I know that passages like 1 Corinthians 7 verse 4 through 5 have been abused and even led to abuse of one spouse in the name of religion. You know, some time ago I read an article about a pastor in that Seventh-day Adventist cult saying that men can and should rape their wives. Now, 
I'm in no way justifying those scenarios. But if you're married, your spouse is supposed to be your partner in everything. If you would stand with your spouse against anything and everything that seeks to come against your marriage, then this would be a non-issue anyway. And that especially includes your gossiping Christian friends who lead you to think bad of the very person you committed your life to. The moment you start talking bad about your spouse with other Christians is the moment you begin to kill your marriage. If your Christian friends are not leading you to build your marriage, they're not your friends. They're devils masquerading as Christians. You know, tares among the wheat, like the Bible says. Christians, whether they realize it or not, are so often embracing the ways of other religions, including outright witchcraft and occult Satan worship practices. It would be wise to be careful about such things. If you believe in Yah, the God of the Bible, and Yeshua, the Hebrew Messiah, then the Bible should be the only text that guides your life. You know, it's even possible that unicorn beliefs trace their origin back to ancient Babylon. Most people who have studied scripture, particularly Israelite history, prior to the Gospels are familiar with the ancient nation of Babylon. This civilization goes back to the book of Genesis and a region originally established by a man named Nimrod, starting in Genesis 10. It seems that Babylon is always a source of controversy and, and people who defy the name of Yah. Now, I realize that many people seek to tie every evil in the world to Babylonian roots. So let me make it clear that I'm not claiming that there were literally unicorns in ancient Babylon or, or Babylonian mythology. We do see some mythical creatures displayed there, such as winged lions, but to my knowledge, there aren't unicorns as a part of any ancient Babylonian beliefs, religion, or mythology. However, there is something interesting that is worth noting and that does tie in with what we already looked at regarding virgins and sexual cult practices. The Epic of Gilgamesh is a well-known ancient Babylonian flood record, the details of which are strikingly similar to the record of Noah in the Bible. While I can't take time to provide a full study on this document right now, there is a portion of the story that I want to share and see if you notice the similarities between what takes place and what I just shared a moment ago about the unicorn mythology and the virgins. It says, so the goddess conceived an image in her mind, and it was the stuff of Anu, of the firmament. She dipped her hands in water and pinched off clay. She let it fall to, into the wilderness, and noble Enkidu was created. There was virtue in him, the god of war, the Ninurta himself. His body was rough. He had long hair like a woman's. It waved like the hair of Nisaba, the goddess of corn. His body was covered with matted hair like Samugans, the god of cattle. He was innocent of mankind. He knew nothing of the cultivated land. And Kiro ate grass in the hills with the gazelle and lurked with the wild beasts at the waterholes. He had joy of the water with the herds of wild game, but there was a trapper who met him one day face to face at the drinking hall, for the wild game had entered his territory. On three days he met him face to face, and the trapper was frozen with fear. He went back to his house with the game that he had caught, and he was dumb, benumbed, 
numbed with terror. His face was altered like that of one who was made a long journey. With awe in his heart, he spoke to his father. Father, there is a man unlike any other who comes down from the hills. He is the strongest in the world. He is like an immortal from heaven. He ranges over the hills with wild beasts and eats grass. He ranges through your land and comes down through the well. I'm afraid and dare not go near him. He fills the pits which I dig and tears up my traps set for the game. He helps the beast to escape, and now they slip through my fingers. His father opened his mouth and said to the trapper, My son, in Uruk lives Gilgamesh. No one has ever prevailed against him. He is strong as a, as a star from heaven. Go to Uruk, find Gilgamesh, extol the strength of this wild man, ask him to give you a harlot, a wanton from the temple of love. Return with her and let her woman's power overpower this man. When, she, when next he comes down to drink at the wells, she will be there stripped naked, and when he sees her beckoning, he will embrace her, and then the wild beasts will reject him. So the trapper set out on his journey to Uruk and addressed himself to Gilgamesh, saying, A man unlike any other is roaming now in the pastures. He is as strong as a star from heaven, and I am afraid to approach him. He helps the wild game to escape. He fills in my pits and pulls up my traps. Gil Gilgamesh said, Trapper, go back. Take with you a harlot, a child of pleasure. At the drinking hole, she will strip. And when he sees her beckoning, he will embrace her and the game of the wilderness will surely reject him. Now the tramper returned, taking the harlot with him. After three days' journey, they came to the drinking hall, and there they sat. The harlot and the trapper sat facing one another and waited for the game to come. For the first day and for the second day, the two sat waiting. But on the third day, the herds came. They came down to drink, and Enkidu was with them. The small wild creatures of the plains were glad of the water, and and Enkidu with them, who ate grass with the gazelle, was born in the hills, and she saw him, the savage man, come from far off the hills. The trapper spoke to her, there he is. Now, woman, make your breasts bare, having no shame. Do not delay, but welcome his love. Let him see you naked. Let him possess your body. When he comes near, uncover yourself and lie with him. Teach him, the savage man, your woman's art, for when he murmurs love to you, the wild beast that shared his life in the hills will reject him. She was not ashamed to take him. She made herself naked and welcomed his eagerness. As he lay on her murmuring love, she taught him the woman's art. For six days and seven nights they lay together, for Enkidu had forgotten his home in the hills. But when he was satisfied, he went back to the wild wild beasts. Then, when the gazelle saw him, they bolted away. When the wild creatures saw him, they fled. Enkidu would have, would have followed, but his body was bound as though with a cord. His knees gave way when he started to run. His swiftness was gone, and now the wild creatures had all fled away. Enkidu was grown weak, for wisdom was in him, and, his, and the thoughts of a man were in his heart. So he returned and sat down at the woman's feet, and listened in intently to what she said. You are wise, Enkidu, and now you have become like a god. Why do you want to run wild with the beasts in the hills? Come with me. I will take you to Strongwald Uruk, to the blessed temple of Ishtar and of Anu, of love 
and of heaven. There Gilgamesh lives, who is very strong, and like a wild bull, he lords it over man. So, here we have a story that was potentially from the time of Noah in the Bible. And many scholars believe that the character of Gilgamesh in this record is the same person identified as Nimrod in Genesis. That details beliefs almost identical to the later unicorn mythology. As we looked at a moment ago, this woman, a cult prostitute, was taken to tame this wild man. She sprawled out naked before him, had sex with him, and through that came to have power over him. With just a few minor details changed, like the cult prostitute in Gilgamesh and the virgin girls in the unicorn mythology, these beliefs are exactly the same. It doesn't take much to see that the cute and whimsical unicorns today marketed to young girls are rooted not only in modern witchcraft practices, but probably trace all the way back to ancient Babylonian beliefs and the evils that developed after the flood record. This is simply not something to play games with. There are very real demon spirits attached to things like this, and when you inundate your children with this stuff, you are literally handing them over to satanic attack in their future. Things rooted in witchcraft and ancient cult prostitution will absolutely open you up to demonic attacks. Even modern feminism is linked to all of this. After all, if you've ever dealt with a hardcore feminist, they're all about controlling men and becoming dominant as women in society. But I probably shouldn't dive into that too deep right now. So now, some might ask, but aren't there unicorns in the Bible? Well, let me address this real quickly before I close out this message. If you've ever read a King James Bible, you've probably seen the word unicorn used to refer to a particular beast. Debate about whether or not this refers to the mythical creature so prominent in witchcraft religions comes up periodically, and while the King James has plenty of known errors, I'm not quite certain this one is completely in error. There are nine uses of the word unicorn in the King James Bible and few and a few other translations that lean toward the King James. Numbers 23-22, 24 Deuteronomy 33-17, Job 39-9-10, Psalm 22-21, 29-6 and 92-10, and Isaiah 34-7. In most modern translations, scholars have leaned toward wild ox, as the correct translation of the Hebrew word, which is re'em. This may seem like a logical conclusion, seeing as the controversial word used in Genesis 9-3 for creeping things is remez, and as Dr. John Walton notes in the NIV application commentary for Genesis, this word refers to kosher wild beasts hunted for food like deer, antelope, and gazelle. However, the actual Hebrew for remez does not seem to match that close to ram. Apart from the first letter of each of these words, the Hebrew is completely different. It, it may be that unicorn is a correct translation of ram, but not for reasons we may think. Keep in mind, the King James Bible was translated using 17th century English. The earliest definition for unicorn that I found in an English dictionary is from the 1828 copy of Webster's Dictionary, where it gives three meanings for this word. An animal with one horn, the monoceros, this name is often applied to the rhinoceros, the sea unicorn, is a fish of the whale kind called a norwal, remarkable for a horn growing out of its nose, and number three, a fowl. 
there is no mention of a mythical creature resembling a white horse, but even this may not be what the King James translators were referencing, and I especially think we can safely rule out narwhals and fowls as a correct translation for the Hebrew ram. There is an extinct species from the rhinoceros family called Elasmotherium, which has been called the Siberian unicorn. This creature was a real beast, large and powerful, comparable in size to a woolly mammoth. It seems to fit the description of the unicorn in scripture better than a wild ox. It's also reasonable to call this beast a unicorn, as the term itself simply means one horn. This beast, unlike rhinoceros species still alive today, had a single large horn that protruded out from its forehead in a very similar way that the horse-like mythical creature of pagan lore does. Uh, although we can pretty well rule it out as the creature mentioned in the Bible, the narwhal, a member of the porpoise family, is a creature that lives in the Arctic waters and has a tooth or tusk that protrudes from the top of its mouth and in appearance looks like a single horn. These are There are stories of these narwhal tusks being harvested and sold as unicorn horns to practitioners of witchcraft in the past. This is because of the high importance of the mythical horse-like unicorn in witchcraft and perhaps this is why depictions of the witchcraft creature is typically depicted with a horn that is more that more strongly resembles the narwhal's tusk the point is that there are and were real creatures on our planet that were referred to as unicorns in other time periods, and any student of language knows that some words mean something totally different today than what they meant decades or centuries ago. These real-life animals are not to be confused with the mythical creature that holds a prominent place in the witchcraft religions. The Bible does not speak of unicorns in the sense of a mythical horse-like creature with a single protruding out from its forehead. There's no reason to believe that the translators of the King James Bible would have translated anything to reference in such a positive way a mythical creature so important to pagan religion and witchcraft. Now, all that said, if we were to assume that since the King James Bible was translated at a time when people believed in him and embraced the idea of mythical unicorns being real, as some might claim, then we have to consider that there are several other translation errors in these dated versions of the Bible as well. For example, the King James also refers in a single passage in the book of Acts to Easter, the pagan festival that serves as a counterfeit to the Passover. But this is well known to be a translation error, whether intentional or not, as it is the Greek word Pascha, and, and this is translated as Passover in every other instance in the King James Bible. Also, Psalm 8.5 in the King James Bible says that man is made a little lower than the angels. This is, a, this is known to be an intentional and politically driven mistranslation and should read, as it does in many other translations, that man is made a little lower than Yah or Elohim. Another known translation error in the King James Bible is a reference to the swan in Leviticus 11. This has led to a great amount of controversy regarding whether or not waterfowl birds, such as ducks, geese, and of course swans, are biblically clean for eating. As it turns out, the Hebrew word used in Leviticus 11 refers to a type of owl 
which makes a lot more sense as other listed unclean birds are birds of prey. On top of that, the Hebrew word for waterfowl is related to other clean fowl like chicken, pheasant, quail, and turkey. This is seen in 1 Kings 5, 2 through 3, where, at least in some translations like the Tree of Life version, geese are listed among the livestock raised for food in the time of King Solomon. But because of this known translation error, there's a lot of misinformation on this spreading around, and many even say that web-footed birds is a whole category of unclean birds, even though scripture says no such thing. So even if we do assume that the King James Bible refers to the mythical pagan creature, we can easily attribute this to being yet another bad translation of the King James Bible. Of course, I personally still think the evidence points toward these references being of the extinct Alasmotherium. Regardless, the Bible would never tell us to embrace something that is a known symbol of witchcraft. The call of Scripture is to be holy. The Bible is very clear. God says to be holy as he is holy. Can we say that unicorns, speaking of the mythical creatures so prominent in the pagan witchcraft religions, are holy? Of course not. They're a long-standing major symbol of witchcraft and demonic sex practices. They're not holy. They're evil, no matter how cute marketers make them out to appear. Look at what the Bible says about topics like witchcraft, sorcery, and idolatry. We know how it ended when King Saul of Israel consulted with the witch at Endor, as recorded in 1 Samuel 28. Samuel, was, who was conjured up from the dead by the medium, told Saul that he would join him in death the next day. We see this play out in 1 Samuel 31. Then there's Jezebel, that evil queen who is listed as a witch in 2 Kings 9.22. And witchcraft is listed among those deeds of the flesh to be shunned in Galatians 5 verses 19 through 21, stating that those engaged in such things will have no part in the kingdom of Yah. Can you imagine being denied admittance into heaven over things like unicorns, mermaids, genies, or some other such mythical creature associated with the witchcraft religions? But this is the game that so many Christians are playing, whether they realize it or not. If you're a child of the king, you have as much of an obligation to shun evil as you do to embrace righteousness. There is nothing good about the inundation of unicorns in modern society. One of the saddest things to me is seeing Christian children I know walking around with their parents wearing clothes that have unicorns or mermaids or things like that on them. The only thing that I can be thankful about is that when I see this, I'm able to pray that God will be merciful on the ignorance of their parents and protect them from the demon spirits trying to latch onto them through these things. And it's not just unicorns. That just happens to be the subject of this message. There are all sorts of demonic things being subtly put onto clothing items. Mermaids, which I've already mentioned, certainly comes to mind, as these two are a major part of witchcraft practice. Also, symbols that are embraced by Christians and Jews, such as the Hamza symbols, also called the Hand of God, that comes from Eastern mysticism and is currently being embraced by Kabbalist Jews. I've even seen Christians sharing a claim that the word abracadabra is used in the world of magic is of Hebrew origin derived from the Hebrew words Abba ben Ruach. Not only is this silly and untrue, 
If you look up the etymology of the word abracadabra, you'll find out that it comes from the Greek abraxas, a Gnostic name for the supreme God. Let me also say one thing before closing. None of what I shared should drive you to fear demon power associated with unicorns, mermaids, or anything else associated with the witchcraft religions. If you are truly saved, you have the spirit of Yah in you and have no reason to fear the demonic. The reason matters like this need to be addressed is not to cause Christians to fear demon spirits, but to teach believers the importance of not having any other gods or things associated with them before Yah. It's not about fearing Satan. It's about revering Yah. If you go to Revelation 21.8, you find a list of people who will be sent to the lake of fire. Those who live in fear are the first on the list. I know people who live in absolute fear of seemingly everything despite claiming to be a Christian. Listen, at the beginning of the pandemic of 2020, people were literally cleaning everything they brought home from the grocery store with bleach sanitizing wipes because they were apparently more afraid of a coronavirus that turned out to have a much higher survival rate than the cancer they might get from overexposure to those harsh chemicals. I know people who don't like to drive and try to limit their time on the road because they're afraid they might get injured or killed in an automobile accident. And yet, the fearful, those who live in fear, is the very first group of people that God's word says will have a place in the lake of fire. Much of the time, I see Christians embracing demonic things and saying something like, it's not like these things have power in our life. We're filled with God's spirit. If that's someone's attitude, I do think it warrants questioning if they really do have God's spirit inside of them. Ezekiel 36, 27 tells us that a, a new covenant believer who has God's spirit in them will be caused to obey the laws of God, the Torah, not embracing witchcraft, other gods, pagan religious practices, and so on, are all a part of obeying the Torah. Embracing such things is not honoring God's commandments toward having no part in other religions. Your daughters don't need clothing with unicorns all over them, and you don't need to buy your coffee where it bears the image of a historically known pagan goddess. There are plenty of other children's clothes and plenty of other coffee shops to give your business to if you serve the God of the Bible. Most Christians seem to want to drive past 10 other coffee houses just to get the one that bears the image of the demon goddess because it's considered a status symbol to drink that coffee. A good practice is that if something is not in the Bible, question it. If it's not in the Bible, research it. And above all things, if something's not in the Bible and it has connections with other religions, especially witchcraft religions, leave it alone. Look, I'm going to close this out by repeating the line I opened this message with. That statement from Dr. Lester Sumrall, who in his lifetime was considered the leading expert on demon spirits, demon powers, and how to be set free from them. Don't play with things connected with demon power. Leave them alone. Hey friends, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. If this message has impacted you, please feel free to share it with others. 
If you're enjoying these teachings, be sure to subscribe and consider becoming a $5 or $10 monthly partner. If you want to make a larger donation, please contact ministry at truthignited.com. If you're interested in more teachings like this from Truth Ignited Ministry, be sure to check out the website at www.truthignited.com and follow Truth Ignited on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram. I'll see you next time. Blessings and Shalom.